From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting the show today, though, with a plea to British Columbians. And this comes from the minister in charge of wildfires and in charge of environmental and emergency management. We all have a part to play in building a more resilient province. And at this time, I am urging people across the province to conserve conserve water. Consider taking shorter showers. Only do full loads of dishes and laundry. Water your lawn sparingly. We are in this together. Do your part. Look out for one another. That was Bowen Ma speaking at a news conference yesterday. Bowen Ma is BC's Minister of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness. So do those measures actually make a difference? And what else can people do when it comes to conserving water? Linda Parkinson is the Director of Water Services with Metro Vancouver and joins us on the line now. Linda, thank you so much for taking some time. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. When we look at what was asked of people yesterday and the minister, as you heard there, the specific ask of taking shorter showers, not running your dishwasher unless it's a full load or your laundry machine as well. How much water do we know? How much water that can actually conserve? How much of a difference it makes? Yeah, I, I think what what I really liked about what the minister said yesterday was was the call to to work collectively and how we can all play a part in in conserving water. And I I think that's definitely true. Uh, what what we know in this region here in in Metro Vancouver is that in in summer our water um, use increases by over fifty percent, and that's primarily driven by outdoor use. And of that outdoor use, we know that lawn watering is is really the the biggest pull on on demand. Um, and so, if you if you want to make a difference, and if you if you uh, want to step up and, and help conserve water in the region, the the biggest single thing that you can do is comply with the with the drinking water uh, conservation regulations and lot water your lawn just one day a week. So we're currently in what we call stage one water restrictions, which allow people to water their lawn one day a week on Saturdays or Sundays, depending on your house number. Um, And so complying with with those regulations is, is a big thing that you can do to help drive down that outdoor use, which we know is such a, a big contributor to, to summer demands. So if that's the number, though, we're up more than 50% because mainly of that outdoor use, people watering lawns and gardens and, and that type of thing. And that was part of the minister's ask yesterday. She, she did mention lawn watering as well. But if then people are also being told to take shorter showers and to be very mindful of using your dishwasher or your clothes washer, is that even really part of the issue? Yes, well, everything contributes to, to, to water demand. Um, so there's uh, there's indoor indoor uh, uses of water and, and outdoor uses of water. Um, a good resource uh, Metro Vancouver has is the We Love Water uh, website. If you go to the We Love Water re- website, you can get tips for reducing outdoor water use and tips for reducing um, indoor water use. Of, of the indoor uses, uh, dishwasher, running full loads on your dishwasher, running full loads of laundry, being mindful of the amount of time you, you spend in the shower. Those are all important ways to, to help conserve water um, uh, through indoor uses. 
Um, but like I said, we, we do know that here, uh, primarily in summer, the, the in, that increase in use is driven by outdoor uses. And so, and, and again, of that, the lawn watering is, is, is the biggest contributor. And so limiting lawn watering, being, and, and on the days that you do use, use your, your sprinkler, being mindful of how it's positioned, make sure it's, it's watering your lawn and it's not positioned to, to send water out onto the sidewalk or out on, onto the street. Um, those, are, those are practical tips that you'll find on We Love we love water, the We Love Water website, and, and you can get things that you can you can do to help drive down demand collectively. And you make an interesting point there, even about the positioning of sprinklers and lawn watering. Do you think is there a role there for enforcement and making sure people are following those rules, or is it done more education and hoping that people will realize why they're being asked to do that? I think both are important. We put a lot of uh, emphasis on on education and and outreach. We have the the We Love Water campaign. We have the website. uh, If you've been to maybe a a car-free day or an event in the region, you might have seen the the water, the Metro Vancouver water wagon, um, which are all aimed at trying to raise awareness of of the importance of of drinking water as a resource and of, of of keeping our drinking water for, for those things we need it, for, for which we need it most, which is cooking and, and cleaning and, and drinking. Um, and there, there's, there's lots of resources available with tips like how to position your sprinkler, things like leaving your lawn, your, your clippings on the lawn to help with um, reduce evapotranspiration or, ha- or how the water um, comes off your lawn. Um, but, but enforcement does also play, play a role. Um, it's Metro Vancouver's member jurisdictions or the, the local cities that, that enforce the, uh, the lawn watering regulations. Um, and so that happens at the, at the city level. All right. Linda Parkinson, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on the show today. Yes, thank you. And thanks for raising this important topic. Taking a look at what's happening at the Canada-U.S. border and members of Congress say they are growing concerned about a shortage of agents. So we heard earlier today from New York Democratic Democrat Representative Brian Higgins saying that Customs and Border Protection personnel are being temporarily reassigned. That's to help fortify the U.S. border with Mexico. And he says that a result of that means there are busy points of entry along the Canada-U.S. border. Those points of entry are seeing longer delays and many unstaffed kiosks. So we wanted to find out if this is something that is happening here as well, as he was talking more about the border crossings in the Ontario region. But joining us to talk more about this is Len Saunders, immigration lawyer with Blaine Immigration. Len, great to chat with you again. Hi, Jill. Long time no chat. Yeah, it has been a while, definitely. Uh, So glad you could come on the show today. When you hear those concerns being brought up by representatives in the United States, are we seeing anything similar here at the border crossings in B.C., B.C., Washington? Oh, absolutely. And I think this has been an issue that's been going on for years, understaffing. That's why on busy weekends, you see, especially long weekends, you see two or three hour delays at the border and you'll see you know half of the lanes there's 10 lanes at peace arch and i don't i don't think i've ever seen every single lane open in in you know the 10 years that that new port of entry has been open so i think they've struggled for years with understaffing 
And for Higgins to bring this up, like I, I hadn't seen this until it was brought to my attention, his uh, memo to Congress from a month ago, and he touches on all the issues that are going on for, you know, on the American side, which obviously affects all your listeners coming down here shopping, going on vacation. And I think he's correct on all of his points. So what needs to be done, do you think, then, as far as is it is it mainly U.S. border agents and that's where the shortage is and they're being reassigned and that's what needs to be addressed? Well, Higgins in his in his uh, press release, he said there was three issues that he's concerned about. The first is understaffed ports of entry. I agree with that. I hadn't crossed over for two and a half years and I now cross probably two or three times a week, I don't recognize any of the officers. They've all transferred. They've all quit. Um, So it's just a constant rotation of officers, especially at Peace Arch and Pacific Highway. He mentioned the Nexus backlogs. You know, it's still taken a year to get a Nexus card. It shouldn't be that long. It should be a very quick process. You know, there should be some sort of, you know, quick background checks. You know, I can do background checks on clients in in a few days or a few weeks. I don't know why they can't do it, both sides of the border, Americans and Canadians. So because, and you know, when I'm going through back and forth with my Nexus card, quite often I'm the only one in the Nexus lane. There's nobody else. They're all stuck in the regular lines. And he also mentioned this mandatory, um, I guess, reassignment of officers on the southern border. I haven't heard a lot of that lately, but that was something... You know, prior to COVID, you'd have officers who I knew quite well grumbling that they were being sent down to the southern border. So, you know, I'm assuming there's a lot of, you know, sending northern border officers to the southern border because of the influx of people crossing over. And, you know, a lot of these officers, they have families, they have kids, they don't want to be down there. And it's, you know, I think there's there's low morale at, at the U.S. border. In, in the past, most Americans, it seemed, didn't really care how long Canadians sat in line. I think the Americans should care. When I drive around Blaine, or down in Bellingham, half of the cars are Canadians, right? That's a huge you know, economic boost to Whatcom County. So it's interesting that it's a congressman on the, on the east you know, side of the U.S. There should be local Congress people or senators in Washington state who are you know saying the same stuff? I know Brian Calder, who's a uh, over in Port Roberts. He's been very vocal on the same issues over in Port Roberts. It shouldn't take you know a private individual like Brian Calder to do what the politicians should do. You know, staff up the borders, make Nexus easier for people to get, and um, you know, make it so that Canadians are welcome down here and don't have to wait for two or three hours to put gas in their car or go shopping at Costco. Right. And uh, when you talk about that as well, and certainly Brian has voiced his concerns on this show many, many times throughout the pandemic and uh, more recently as well. When you talk about that, though, that the the United States really in the past hadn't been all that concerned if Canadians were stuck waiting in border lineups. Was there concern even the other way as far as Americans coming into Canada as well? Or is that getting more attention now? Well, I hate to say it, when I drive up to to the lower mainland and drive around, I never see any U.S.-plated cars up there. You don't have the influx of Americans shopping up there like you see the Canadians. 
the Americans, they're probably all going up to Whistler or maybe going on cruises. But you just like, you know, if I park somewhere in Surrey, I'm the only license plate with U.S. plates. So I don't think you see the same concerns going into Canada. Yeah, there's there's lineups, but you don't see, you know, the frequent travelers who are coming down there, picking up their packages at the mailbox places, getting gas at the gas stations, doing all their grocery shopping. So I think this is more of a, of a U.S. issue th- th- than a Canadian issue. Yeah, there's lines going north, but I don't think you see, you know, the problems that you see on the American side of the border. No, it's interesting you mentioned that. I even noticed the other day I was driving over the Oak Street Bridge and there was a fender bender. There was a a rear end fender bender on the bridge. And both of the cars involved in the fender bender had Washington state license plates. I don't know if they were traveling together or it was just a coincidence that one person from Washington bumped into another. But I thought that exact thing when I saw that, not only was it strange to see a small crash with uh, Washington plates, but that we're not seeing or it doesn't seem like there are a lot of Washington plates driving around Metro Vancouver. Oh, and, you know, I'll go to Costco and I'll count the cars and literally every second car is a Canadian car. I'll go to Semiamu Golf Course, which had no cars in it during the pandemic at the golf course. Now probably 90% of the cars are Canadian cars. So you definitely see a lot more Canadians coming down here. And, you know, half of the American officers, they don't care, right? They just go there. They, they do their, their nine to five jobs. And I have to give this Congressman Higgins, and he was very vocal during COVID, trying to get the borders to reopen and, you know, try to have cross-border you know, movement of people. And he's now bringing up issues that I read his press release, and I agreed with him 100%. But these are issues that, that happened other than Nexus before COVID, right? The lack of officers. How hard is it to open up 10 lanes? It should be easy, right? Bring and especially for Peace Arch, it's the third busiest port of entry on the northern border. And for them to not have every single line open on weekends, you just have to shake your head. Uh, Yeah, I think there are a lot of people, especially if you're stuck in that border lineup doing that. Uh, So we talked about the understaffing at at the northern border uh, points of entry, something that that the representative brought up. But he also, like you said, mentioned nexus since his exact quote was an unacceptable backlog of nexus applicants remains. And uh, this is a program that's intended to expedite cross-border crossings. And it continues to be buried under a massive backlog, saying that so one resident applied in February of this year, was told that he might get his interview in January of 2024, uh, that the processing time can be 12 to 14 months. I mean, that does seem like a really long time, but are you hearing similar scenarios or similar stories? I was at Christmas with my son-in-law. He's moving from Texas up to Seattle, never had Nexus. I said, you got to get Nexus before you move up to Washington State. He applied in December, no updates, just pending. Seven months, eight months. Well, why should it take that long just for a simple review of his application? No criminal convictions, no immigration violations, American citizen, just graduated from law school, squeaky clean, eight-month wait. Hasn't even heard anything. Now, once he gets approved, then the next story. Now he has to book an appointment. So, and those, those are all over the place. I've heard people, they, you know, they go online with various apps and get told at two in the morning there is a cancellation and they get an appointment 
other people, it's months and months and months to get in. So I'm going to guess right now, probably the current wait time is about a year to get an appointment. Hmm. Unless you're lucky Once, enough. Oh, sorry, from, from start to finish, right? Right. From when you apply until your appointment. So. Right. And if you're lucky enough, I guess, to get one of those cancellations or, or to find one that may, might uh, miraculously have an opening. Absolutely. And the key is if you already have a card, apply before the renewal or before the expiry date, then it's automatically extended. But so many people, they let their cards expire during the pandemic because they weren't using them. And so they forgot that their card had expired. And then now they're at the back of the line. And are you still then advising people to get that out and make sure whether it's putting a note in your phone or somewhere that you're not going to forget and apply? Because how early or do you know how early you can apply before the expiry date? You can apply a year before the expiry date and they're extended for it was two years. It may have backed down to a year, but it was two years from the from when it expired. So anyone who applied before the expiry had no problems because the extension carried them through until they got their new card and rarely were they doing interviews. Like right now, if you already have a card and you do the um the reapplication before the expiry date, then people were just getting their cards in the mail with no interview. The funny part is is that people were getting cards with their pictures from 10 years ago. And a good example is my 17-year-old. He's got his picture from when he was 10. <laughs> so what's going to happen with him is when, when his expires when he's 23, he's probably going to have a beard. You know, meanwhile, you have his picture when he was 10 years old. So you're going to have a lot of people with very outdated pictures on their Nexus cards. Yeah, he probably doesn't even look like the same person. Absolutely not. It's kind of funny. But that's how they're getting rid of the backlog is they're scrapping most of the interviews for renewals. Uh, do you see anything else changing then? Or what else uh, do you think needs to change as we see more and more people traveling again and those busy border crossings? Well, here's one interesting thing, which, which we haven't talked about. So if you're not Canadian, you just can't come to the border and, and come in. You have to get a visa. So let's say you're a new immigrant from India or China or the Philippines in Canada. You actually have to go to a consulate to get a visa to come to this country. Do you know how long the wait time is to get a visitor visa appointment at the U.S. consulate in Vancouver? It's almost two years. Can you imagine, Jill, if you've immigrated to Canada and you're all excited, you want to go down to Disneyland or go to Hawaii or see your friends in Washington State, and you're told it's a two-year wait to get a visitor visa? That's a whole other story. Like, that is pathetic. I fly to India once in a while on cases, and you can get a visa within days to go to India. I can't imagine the Americans... You know, it's going to take years for them to get rid of this backlog at consulates. And it's so many people want to travel to this country, and it's, it's economically hurting the Americans by not being able to get a visa to come to this country as a non-Canadian. Hmm, that's hard to believe that the, the lineup, the backlog is that big. They were closed for most appointments for two years. So when they reopened, they have a massive backlog. So when people ask me, you know, can you help me, you know, my brother or sister who just immigrated to Canada get a U.S. visitor visa so they can come and visit me this summer? I'm like, this summer? How about two summers from now, 2025? <laughs> and people look at me like they're shocked, and they're like, well, maybe I'll go to Calgary or Toronto to the consulate. I'm like, it's as bad there. 
It's literally a two-year wait to get a visitor visa appointment at a U.S. consulate to come to this country. So Canadians are actually lucky if they have to sit in line for a couple hours. At least they're able to come in and not have to wait for two years just to apply for the visa. That's pathetic. Yeah, that's uh, certainly, hopefully, uh, something there will change. Len, we're right out of time, but as always, thanks so much. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. Well, some new numbers that have been put out by WorkSafe BC show that driving, even if you do it just once in a while as part of your job, it could potentially be the most dangerous thing you do while you are on the clock. Joining us to talk more about these numbers is Trace Akers, Program Director of Road Safety at uh, Road Safety at Work. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Jill. It sounds pretty alarming to say that this is the leading cause when we're talking about traumatic workplace death in BC, but that is what these numbers are showing. So can you explain a little bit about what you looked at and some of these findings? Absolutely. So according to WorkSafe BC stats, um, uh, vehicle incidents are the number one, the leading cause of uh, traumatic workplace injuries and deaths in British Columbia. A third of all workplace-related fatalities occur um, when somebody is either driving a vehicle, riding in a vehicle, or being struck by a vehicle at the side of the road. So we do know that it is uh, perhaps one of the more dangerous things that you could do at work. And uh, we're trying to get the word out there and to raise awareness among employers that uh, they have a responsibility to ensure that their employees, that they're providing a safe workplace for their employees, and that extends to vehicles that they're driving for work. What kind of numbers are we looking at them? Because I know WorkSafe BC looked at a specific time period. And what kind of numbers did you get back as far as fatalities and injuries? So for the period 2017 to 2021, five-year period, um, we see an average of 20 people killed in work-related vehicle crashes and 1,400 injured seriously enough to have to take time off of work. Uh, And that's every year. Hmm. And so we have the numbers uh, until 2021. Are there are, are you still tracking it or do you expect that perhaps that trend or that increase is continuing? Well, that's what uh, road safety at work is all about is trying to, first of all, raise awareness amongst employers of their responsibilities to help ensure the safety of their employees while they're at work and to provide them with tools, resources, courses, anything that we can to uh, give them the skills and the tools that they need to be able to uh, help keep those employees safe. When you talk about an employee and driving for work, then are you specifically talking about somebody whose vehicle is typically their workplace? Or are you also including driving to and from work or having to use your vehicle even just occasionally? Not to and from work. But any time that you're doing thing, anything on the job, uh, you're, you're in a, uh, a work-related or a work vehicle, even if it's your own vehicle. Uh, so we have the obvious ones like truck drivers, couriers, transit drivers, people who are behind the wheel for their entire shift. Uh, but then we have the other ones that may be less obvious, like electricians and plumbers and carpenters who are traveling between work sites or going from client to client. Uh, home health care workers who are traveling uh, between clients in different locations throughout their community. Even people like realtors um, uh, and, and as, even as far as any, an executive assistant who might have to go out to get catering to, for that all-day meeting. Um, they're all doing work um, when they're out there behind the wheel. So 
everyone has a responsibility. Employers have a responsibility to ensure that any time their employer is behind the wheel during their job, uh, that they're uh, provided with the skills, provided with the workplace that's as safe as possible. Do the numbers show as well what's causing the, 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 the high levels or causing workers to be in dangerous positions? Is it that they're driving and it's other drivers on the roads that are causing the crashes or does it dif- differentiate between whether or not it was the fault of the worker causing the crash or the injury? The statistics mirror very closely what some of the general um, uh, causes of uh, uh, crashes are. So, for example, speeding, um, uh, distractions, and then there are all the weather-related factors as well because the, the incidence of workplace injuries does go up during the, uh, the winter months and, uh, and certainly during times when it's very busy as well. Right. So the so kind of the same as when we hear from, uh, I know we hear from workplace as well, the, the Monday after the clock's changing or when we're, like you said, in the winter months when it's darker, the roads can be icy and that we do see an increase in crashes. And that carries through to, uh, to uh, workplace injuries and deaths as well. That's correct. So when we look at the types of jobs, and you mentioned some, the, the most obvious ones where you would expect somebody to be on the road a lot, a courier, a truck driver, is it, does it break it down then by the, the level of risk or the increased level of risk by, by type of job or how that, that kind of thing, or, or does, is that too specific? Well, we do track stats according to occupation and according to sectors. Uh, and then we look at some of those subsectors where we're seeing a particularly high incidence of workplace injuries and deaths. As I mentioned, home health care workers is one that we've looked at uh, fairly closely over the last few years because workplace or sorry, WorkSafe BC statistics are showing a fairly high incidence uh, in that particular occupation. Uh, we're also this year looking at construction and uh, all of the subsectors within construction. We've also looked at um, uh, waste and recycling uh, as an area where there's a lot of drivers and there can be quite a few injuries as well. So we're tracking those on an annual basis to see where the injuries uh, are occurring. The other thing that we have just started doing is looking at large versus smaller employers. Um, Large employers tend to have uh, dedicated health and safety officers, uh, whereas small employers may not. So we're trying to look at the difference between uh, the, the injury and death rates um, according to the size of the business as well. And when you talk about businesses needing to do their part and making sure that their employees are safe, other than saying, hey, safe travels or have a safe trip, do you need, have everything you need or, or asking people, what specifically are businesses being asked to do as far as keeping their employees safe? Well, there's some real basics. And if I think of my own uh, situation, when I was very early in my career, I was a young radio reporter uh, working in the Kootenays. And I drove my own vehicle, and I put thousands of kilometers on that vehicle. And I don't recall ever once being asked if I had a valid driver's license, if my insurance was up to date, how uh, mechanically sound is my vehicle, are the tires in good shape? Those are all things that employers should be thinking about, starting with uh, with some of the basics, like are you um, qualified to drive to start with, and how much experience do you have behind the wheel? And if uh, somebody is not comfortable or doesn't have much experience, then there's lots of things that they can do or suggest to that individual uh, to help improve their skills.
You're right. And probably something people don't think about a lot, but you're right. I I just, you made me think back to uh, when uh, I've been in that position. I've been asked for my driver's license, a a copy of it when taking out a company vehicle, but never when it's using your own. Well, exactly. And uh, and a lot of, we've done some surveys of uh, smaller employees, employers, sorry, up to about a hundred employees. And uh, they kind of look at it and say, well, if, if that person arrived safely at work in their car, then they're entirely capable of doing whatever I need them to do during their shift. And uh, that's not really the right attitude to take. The attitude to take is to what can I do as an employer to help ensure that that person is, first of all, qualified and safe to drive? And secondly, are they in a vehicle that's going to get them from A to B safely? Uh, One of the tips as well that is in this release saying that if you're not confident in your driving abilities, ask your supervisor for training. Is there an obligation on the part of employers? Do they have to provide driver training to people? Well, they, it, it certainly is something that they can do, and uh, one of the things that they should do is, is assess the skills of their drivers. That's one of the things that they should really do to ensure that they are in compliance uh, with WorkSafe legislation is, uh, is to do an assessment of the skills of that driver and then see what they need to do to, uh, to help them improve and build their skills. So, yeah, employers do have a responsibility, and, uh, and as you say, it's not that well-known, especially among smaller employers where they are multitasking, where you might have one person in, in charge of a number of areas within their organization, and uh, it's something that uh, a lot of people just don't think about. Uh, and even looking at it as well, so, uh, suggesting that people uh, take the ICBC, the driver knowledge practice test to refresh your knowledge of, of road signs, uh, road signs, sorry, of, of driving behavior. Uh, I would guess there are a lot of people that if you took that test, it, some of it, maybe people have completely forgotten. And I remember talking to, to ICBC not that long ago, we were talking about the road test for new drivers and that more than 50% fail the test the first time and then have to stay in that long line to, to retest. So I, I guess it's not a huge surprise that there are people driving that that either are brand new and maybe still getting used to it or kind of have forgotten some of the basics. Well, exactly. And uh, in speaking with a number of employers this year, um, the number of them that are dealing with young and new drivers is really quite astonishing because, as we know, there's a, a worker shortage. So, uh, so a lot of uh, young and inexperienced people are uh, coming into the workforce, and uh, and they they might actually be better because it's not been that long since they took the driving uh, uh, test and uh, and went through their N and their um, their 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 uh, novice drivers uh, uh, period. But uh, those of us who've been driving for many, many years, um, the last time we did that may have been when we took our driver's test when we were 16 or 17 years old. So anybody could use a a refresher and uh, they might be surprised at some of the information that you find in uh, in tests like the online ICBC test. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Trace, just one other question. Uh, How much of this do you think also is busier roads and people are back driving, even if their work schedule is a bit different? The roads are very busy and I'm sure others, we're going to open up the phone lines to see this, but uh, I mean, I see people going through that third car that goes through on the red light at intersections, tailgating. I mean, it's easy to see behaviors that that increase the the probability of crashes every day. How much of it is, is, do you think, the busyness of roads and people kind of cutting those corners. Busyness and impatience. 
uh, I think we see a, an awful lot of impatience out on the road and people don't want to be inconvenienced and have to wait a couple more minutes so they're prepared to take some chances and that's just not the thing that you should do. One of the other things that employers can do is they can set a safe driving policy within their organization that basically says you will abide by all of the rules of the road and uh, and that's, that may be a good place to start for a lot of employers is just to tell your, your employees that look we have a policy in place, a driving policy in place that uh, requires you to make sure you obey the laws. All right. Trace Akers, thank you so much for joining us, for being here today. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Coming up this half hour, we have more tickets to give away. Once again, we've got a pair of tickets to go see the Vancouver Whitecaps taking on the LA Galaxy. That is happening this Saturday at BC Place. So not quite yet, but stay tuned for your cue to call. And I'll give you a little hint. Because they are playing the LA Galaxy this Saturday, we've got some space trivia. Three multiple choice questions. First listener who calls when we give you the cue to call. First listener to get all three questions correct is going to win those tickets. So stay tuned for that. Right now, though, we are talking a little bit about Amazon Prime Days. And yes, a bit of a frenzy. People can get caught up in trying to get those great deals. But with Amazon Prime Days also comes a big increase in online scams. And Robert Falzon is joining us now, the head of engineering at Checkpoint Canada. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time. Good afternoon. Thank you. Uh, what exactly is Checkpoint Canada? So Checkpoint is uh, actually Checkpoint's been in the business of securing the internet for uh, the last thirty years, as of last week. So we have a lot of experience in this area, cybersecurity, and creating the solutions that allow companies and people to get online safely. All right. So with that in mind, given that Amazon Prime Days are now in full swing, what do people need to be worried about or be concerned about when it comes to online scammers? I'd say the first rule would be if it looks too good to be true, it is. That's the big one for sure. Um, Amazon Prime uh, represents a, a great giant sale from Amazon that happens once a year, and everybody usually gets quite excited about it. The challenge that uh, that also brings with it is the fact that many, many scammers also get very excited about it. So we've seen a dramatic increase of, um, of attacks related to Amazon phishing emails and so forth and com- campaigns um, in the last little while here leading up to this campaign today, uh, about 16 times higher in June alone compared to May. So a significant increase in overall campaigns against people uh, using Amazon's uh, Prime Day as its target. And what exactly are they doing? Are they taking advantage of the fact people are looking for those deals? And maybe when you see something that, that seems too good to be true, you might be okay with it or you might think it's still legit because it is Amazon Prime and they're looking to kind of play up on that? You bet. So imagine you're, you're, you know, you know that Amazon Prime Day is coming and you're monitoring your email and one day you get a, a notification in your email that says, you know, some great deals come along. It's uh, 80% off or 90% off or something extravagant like that. You get pretty excited about it. There's a good chance that you might click on that link because, hey, you know, Amazon Prime Day is right around the corner. Maybe this is an early access email or something. And, and this is what they're relying on. They're relying on people's excitement about the, about the uh, sale to get them to do things they wouldn't normally do, to get their guard down a little bit. So phishing, which is the, 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 the one I just described here, where they receive an email, uh, that's probably the most, uh, the, the most seen that we've seen so far, for sure. And, you know, we've, uh, the, the, unfortunately, the hackers are actually 
they're signing up for domains that are similar or related to Amazon in an effort to fool people further. So it even begins to look more like it is Amazon itself sending you that email, but it isn't. Hmm. So what do people need to look for then in those email, those phishing campaigns that that are looking more and more legit? What are the, the telltale signs or what should people be looking for? Well, the, the easiest ones, first of all, are when you see that, say, for example, um, the email comes in and they spelled Amazon wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a pretty good indicator. That's probably something you should be very aware of. Um, but there's also other things, too. Some of these things are fairly sophisticated, and they may not have spelling mistakes and grammar mistakes in, in obvious uh, that you can see. But they also might be coming from domains that are not specifically Amazon. Uh, they're also be cautious of things right before Prime Day that are asking you to update payment information or to fill out a form with all of your personal information in it to, say, update your information on Amazon for your profile. Those types of things right before Prime Day certainly don't make a lot of sense. And, you know, Amazon's not sending those things out to have people change that either. Right. And and so keeping keeping that in mind, with Amazon Prime, though, because this is a day that is specifically for subscribers of that service, is there some sense of security or is that misplaced that once you log on and you, you are going to that specific site, you're using your password, you make the assumption, don't you, that you're on the legitimate Amazon site? Sure, it does It does seem that way for a lot, but there's some things you can do to make sure that you are for sure. First of all, make sure it is Amazon.ca if you're in Canada. Look for the lock symbol. Make sure you're using SSL, and you'll see that in your browser's uh, uh, search bar as well in most cases. Um, make sure that you're using a strong password. That's the other thing. I mean, Amazon does have some responsibility for making sure their site itself is safe, but you, uh, you know, our listeners also have a responsibility to make sure that they're taking care of themselves by not sharing their passwords with other people, making sure those passwords are certainly more complex and not as easy to hijack. Those are important things to remember as well. You talked about the increase as well of the new domains and even uh, think that the statistic over the last month of 1500 with the term Amazon and the, the bulk of those found to be risky. How are you able to, to figure that out or how do you know such a high number are risky and, and not legitimate accounts? Well, Checkpoint has a very significant research arm. Uh, We spend a great deal of time and and, uh, resources in researching these exact types of things. So using tools like artificial intelligence and machine learning, we're able to gather a great deal of information across the, the globe uh, from our global customers about the the you know the various different types of attacks and domains and things that they're seeing crossing their gateways. Plus, we work with other security partners as well to make sure that um, you know we're sharing that information and, and trying to keep everyone safe. You talk as well about the psychological trips uh, tricks. Sorry, or that whole idea of it if it seems too good to be true and and people getting kind of swept up in the frenzy uh, of the day. What can people do, or is it too late if you do get caught by this or you do fall for one of these scams? If you do fall for one of these scams, the, the first thing to make sure you do is, is to do the obvious. Make sure you go to your bank and make them aware that you believe your account or your credentials might have been compromised. If you believe it was just your Amazon account, make sure you get into your Amazon account and change that password immediately. And make sure that you're using multi-factor authentication wherever possible. The, you, know, you can certainly reach out to if you have been defrauded. Uh, the Canadian government has an excellent uh, anti-fraud website where you can go and look at some of the um, the various different types of attacks that are being levied against consumers in Canada and give yourself, uh, you know, a, be prepared, be a, bit, a little bit better uh, and more aware of what types of things hackers are willing to do before it actually happens to you.
And you mentioned as well, you might get that email about uh, updating your financial information or the, those uh, those emails that are not legit. It's somebody that is trying to fool you. Is that what scammers are, are most often looking for? Are they trying to get your credit card information or what are they actually hoping to, to gain by doing this? Yeah, ultimately, this has a financial goal for the for, for most most of the cases here. So whether they're going to use your actual um, credentials themselves to like your actual financial credentials themselves to try to get straight up uh, funds from you is one poten- potential option. But they also might be involved in other scams where they say purchase products and then try to get them shipped to them because many of these folks are not in Canada where they're they're operating these schemes from. So they'll perhaps try to you know buy buy products with your uh, Amazon account and then have them sent to foreign companies or foreign countries by other individuals who have also been uh, hacked. Right. So creating this chain, if you will, or supply chain of uh, of victims that allow them to be successful and then get that uh, that get that money out of it is this the worst time or the the busiest day that scammers take advantage of i mean it makes sense that we would be looking out for this and, and hopefully being aware of this all the time if you're doing online shopping or, or taking part in these types of events but is this the one that they really focus on well, considering uh, Amazon has such a huge impact globally on our consumer world, this is a really, really significant one. Other ones, obviously, around Christmas time, uh, Black Friday, and you know, depending on whatever whatever you know time of year gets people excited or has something to do with shopping, they're going to be all over it. So you have to be aware if you if you know that somewhere in your area there's going to be um, you know a Boxing Day sale, be aware you're going to see these types of things in your inbox, and they are looking to they look into scam you, unfortunately. And uh, I imagine, too, that there aren't a lot of repercussions, that we don't know where the scammers are located and they're doing this behind that uh, kind of cloak of anonymity, uh, that they know they can get away from it. And even if they throw out a thousand lines uh, and get one hit, uh, it's worth it for them. It is, because even many of the people perpetrating these scams themselves are victims often, right? So they're signing up for jobs they think are call center related or what have you, and it turns out they're part of a criminal cyber gang and and don't even know it. So the difficulty is getting to the folks at the top of these scams. There's been a lot of uh, effort, uh, you know, and the the Canadian government's been involved uh, in law enforcement in trying to get some of these uh, folks held accountable. So there is progress being made, but you're right. It's such a huge web, uh, and it's so easy to get these things going just because it you know, doesn't take a lot of outlay to get them started. And as you can see, it's just as simple as sending an email and having someone follow up to try to, uh, to, try to, uh, to make the attack successful. So, yeah, they're very, very difficult to get a hold of, and consumers really do need to be self-aware and very careful. Robert Falzon, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.